0: Just say plain conversation here on ninety four WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My next guest, Dr. John Huber from Mainstream Mental Health. He our, our expert on all things psychological. Good morning, Dr. Huber.
1: Good morning, Peter. How are you this morning? I'm
0: fine. How's it going down there in Texas with COVID nineteen?
1: It's doing pretty good. It's pretty good. It's uh, it's definitely. Uh, a change in pace but other than that I think we're doing pretty good at this point.
0: Well, that's good to hear certainly because that's not like the rest of the country is it?
1: Well you know it, it, it's funny you say that. I just got back from Seattle about uh, about 14 days ago and uh, not quite that probably probably about 12 days ago and uh, it, it it was a lot looser then and it's kind of tightened up a little bit here you know, as we've had more outbreak here in Central Texas, but uh, it, it is kind of a natural process as we try to do something. That's why I think a lot of people are hoarding things and, and buying way too many rolls of toilet paper <laughs> and, and all the dry goods they can, is we're trying to do something because we don't really know what we need to do as a population, but we divert to something like a hurricane process. How, how What do we do in a hurricane to protect ourselves? So this is kind of a, a unique situation. I'm not saying it's rational, but all that hoarding behavior is a, a natural biological drive for us to do.
0: And we don't know how long it's going to last. I've heard the government is talking about 18 months.
1: Well, you know, and, and we don't really know how long this is going to happen. Uh, I, I think 18 months is you know, knowing the cycle of how normal flu outbreaks happen, that may be a lot longer than, than what biologically would happen, you know. But uh, I'm not going to say never. Uh, I think uh, uh, this idea, you know, the president was talking about just, just in the last day or so about quarantining off parts of, you know, New York, New Jersey and, and Connecticut, and he's talking about a two-week process. And if you think about the natural cycle of, for example, a regular flu or a regular cold, that two- to three-week uh, quarantine may be all that we really need to really put an end to some of the, the, the transmissions that we're talking about.
0: Didn't seem to work though in China. They just reported five new cases.
1: Well, and that's a lot better than the thousands they were having. So, I mean... What we have to worry about here is that in China, in every country around, we really don't know what the true numbers are because we're not testing everybody. And my suspicion is that that this has been here in the States much longer than we really want to admit. I mean, I have two teenage kids, and they both had uh, in early January and late January had all the symptoms for this. Uh, we didn't know what they were here at the time, but they tested negative for the flu. They tested negative for strep throat, yet they both missed uh, a good you know, 10, 12 days of this upper respiratory thing. Felt like they had the flu, had high fevers, then they would go away, then be back on a high fever, fluctuating back and forth. But an upper respiratory cough that uh, was really, you know, it, it looked like the flu, but it wasn't the flu because they didn't test positive for it. So the possibility that this has been here longer than we actually realized is is, is a reality. So uh, it may be everywhere. We just don't are testing for everything at this point. We don't have enough test kits to do it.
0: This is true. Now, one thing that fascinates me is the quarantine aspect of this problem. Some people are abiding by quarantine. Some people aren't. Stories about young people... In California, flocking to the beach at the hiking trails rather than staying home where they should be.
1: Well, what we, we have to look at, too, are the life cycles of, of a, a virus. And one of the things we know is ultraviolet light is devastating to most viruses in general. So actually being outside may be the safest place for us. It's that six-foot distance we have to kind of watch out for if the people you're close to are people you would be close to if you were locked down in your house, I don't really have an issue with that, working in hospitals. Now, again, I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD, but I also, you know, work with our infectious disease doctors and things like that. And go back to the Spanish flu, one of the things they encouraged people to do actually was to get outside where, you know, the natural, uh, Processes of, of UV sunlight and like that could uh, kind of protect you from the, the viral infection. We also know that vitamin D, which is made by sunlight contact with the skin, is very, very beneficial in fighting off viruses and helps our immune system significantly to have high levels of vitamin D. So, again, sunlight may be the key to this. So it, it's kind of a, a mix situation there do we really want people to to be congregating with other people they wouldn't be close to if they were not home not really we don't want that because that increases the spread but if we can keep that social distance of six to ten feet away from people we wouldn't naturally be close to in our home the sunlight actually may be our best defense against uh that this kind of viral infection
0: possibly certainly but the beach looked awful crowded Lots of, Absolutely. lots of room for Absolutely. people to call they, for each other.
1: And they did the same thing here in Austin when you know we announced that we need to do the shelter in place and the news took all these pictures what they did is they took the the pictures like within an hour of the of the governor making that call for this county so the people there at at the local swimming hole didn't even know about it cuz it didn't have enough time to for them to to react because it hadn't trickled down to people who weren't at uh, a TV or a radio right then at that moment. So, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a confusing thing and a lot of us need to maintain this sense of caution. I don't want people falling into paranoia. Cause that's when we start doing stupid things. Uh, we need to be cautious again, practice good hygiene, And uh, maybe this this kind of quarantine might actually be a benefit to us and solve some other problems other than the uh, coronavirus. And some of them being that social isolation we've kind of created artificially with the screen time. I mean, being forced to be inside with your family or be in home with your family and interact with your family as other human beings instead of texting everybody uh, may actually benefit some of the, what has ailed this culture since the invention of and release to the public of smartphones in 2007.
0: Well, let me ask you another question, then With people being told work at home, husbands, wives, couples, and the children are at home because both schools are closed, some people find it not a problem and other people go, I married you for better or for worse, but not for 24 hours a day.
1: <laughs> well... You know, it's always that conundrum with with marriage. Fifty percent of them end in divorce and the other 50 percent end in death. (laughs) And we have to kind of be cautious about that uh, because we want that death thing to be a long way down the road. And uh, it may be a situation where some of the problems that, that the relationship is having may be brought to the surface. You can't hide from that when you're in that 24 hours a day situation. And uh, some of the best marriages happen when both both individuals in the marriage are able to bring their outside world into the marriage and keep conversation going about what's going on. For example, in my, my macro world, when I go to work versus your macro world, when you go to work, and it, it always kind of keeps the marriage uh, fresh somewhat. But if that stops, if all of a sudden... All you have to talk about are the issues that you both face together side by side. Pretty soon, you know, remembering to do the laundry and take out the trash and pay the bills becomes a significant barrier to peace in that relationship. And we have to be cautious for that, definitely.
0: Well, what advice though do you have for people who are getting on each other's nerves?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I actually advise to, you know, Go for a walk, and you don't have to do it at the same time, but walk around your block, get some sunlight again, get a little exercise. I recommend that you get into a pattern, uh, a repeated pattern. Get up at the same time, that type of stuff. It doesn't have to be exactly like your work pattern, but uh, getting into a a pattern where you have kind of set guidelines because in this situation, if you... You know, don't have to get up tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock and be at work by, by 9 or 6 o'clock and be at work by 7 or whatever your pattern is. All of a sudden, you can stay up all night. And so now you, your kids get up in the morning and it wakes you up and you got to get them breakfast. You're running on sleep deprivation. Uh, you're not going to have your faculties available to have uh, a, a real way to manage that relationship, that marriage, and it can be very problematic. So uh, good sleep, get some standardization in your life. In other words, your day becomes kind of a habituated behavior Uh, and uh, a little bit of exercise and some sunlight and go back to some basic communication skills. Just because you guys live with each other all the time doesn't mean you can read each other's mind. (laughs) So...
0: This is true. Now, but again, it gets hard in so many ways um, to maintain your composure when you're on top of each other. And sometimes in a house, that can be the case. Any any other thoughts besides take a walk,
1: Dr. Huber? Uh, besides take a walk? Well, you know, there are. There are some psychologists and some therapists that are doing some Skype uh, interviews and and coaching and things like that. That might be worthwhile doing that. If you already have a relationship with a therapist, uh, it's probably going to be much easier to do. I know that uh, the National Association, uh, you know, the American Psychological Association and and my state organization are – are encouraging therapists to make themselves available online through Skype and Zoom and other types of face-to-face uh, uh, media apps here. Uh, and that might be something it, that you could benefit from. You know, you've got some time together. Why not uh, try to maybe work on that relationship? Uh, biggest, biggest thing you can do oftentimes, though, is relearning how to communicate. And I know when I do couples therapy Um, In a normal time, normal situation, I tend to set up uh, dating type um, activities that push your boundaries. For example, one person is not allowed to, to, to actually say anything verbally or write down anything in handwriting for a date, for example. Well, you know, it's kind of hard to go on a date when you're being quarantined. So that kind of stops, but maybe there are some activities you can do to work on communicating without uh, having to use words because all of a sudden you have to start paying more attention to your significant other, and you have to put down your cell phone. You have to focus on the interaction between both of you. And, again, it goes back to basic communication skills, and there's lots of things individuals can do. Uh, I would I would encourage people to uh, – You know, at this time, be cautious about what you bring to the table. There may be some situations that, you know, you need to wait until you can go see a therapist before you bring those topics up. You know, for example, if there's concerns with maybe some extramarital affairs and things like that, now may not be the time to bring that up uh, without having somebody as a moderator to help manage that, that conversation. So play it smart and uh, realized that you know it's a two-way street and uh, the situation didn't get there because one person alone there were two people involved in that so be smart about the whole process
0: and certainly being at home gives you time to clean a closet read a book bake a cake
1: oh absolutely and we've been doing all of that in my household Uh, and uh, it's actually been refreshing my kids have put their phones down and and uh, it, it's it's like I said before, I think maybe this might be fixing some of our other problems that, that are beyond the virus. But some of the, the social issues that we've had that have been created because of social media. So this may be a blessing in disguise for our nation in general, maybe the whole planet.
0: Should we be worried, though, when our kids can't be in school?
1: You know, it it goes down. How much are they really socializing anyhow? Um, If the kids are able to process and get on to, you know, a lot of these online academic programs, there's several, you know, Texas here, for example, has two or three different programs that are totally online and kids don't have to go to school if they register and do their work that's provided online. Now I have a senior, he's supposed to be graduating this year. And it's kind of a, you know, kick to his gut that all of a sudden there's no prom and that there's no graduation ceremony. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, he was looking forward to that as a senior. You know, he, he was lucky enough to go and do some of that stuff as a junior, but it's not his, it wasn't his opportunity. It wasn't his day, so to speak. And uh, he and several of his friends are, are upset with that. And then there's a lot of those kids that are kind of glad, hey, I don't have to deal with, you know, 40 different family members coming into town and staying with us for for a week while I'm trying to stress through finals and stuff like that. So uh, I think it's a mixed blessing. But uh, that socialization, it, it's it's not as big a deal for some kids. For other kids, it's a much bigger deal. So play it by ear with your children. Watch don't just listen to what they have to say, watch their behavior and don't be afraid to ask them how they're doing about things because uh, you may be a very important lifeline for them to realize that, you know, it, it's, it's, an, it's a fun memory to have, but it's not essential for you to have that in the future. And uh, what I mean by that is when I was in college, I chose not to do graduation and things like that because of... Uh, Some family issues, illnesses in my family, and I didn't need my whole family coming and traveling, you know, and spending a whole week out of their lives when they had other issues and and things that, you know, were actually much bigger for the family in general. And uh, that was a choice I got to make. These kids aren't getting a choice for that. So I think there may be some undue stress that uh, as parents we don't think about for them. So keep an eye out for for our kids and our, our young adults, and uh, I think I think they're going to be in, ge- in general in a good, good position, but uh, you need to be alert for some possible uh, psychological issues, maybe some depression. You know, a lot of people, they kind of don't see life beyond the next week, so it could be very overwhelming for some of our kids who aren't so forward-looking, so...
0: Well, not overwhelming for kids, but overwhelming for adults, too. Hard to, oh, see, hard to see life next week when you're worried about, is that the coronavirus knocking at the door?
1: <laughs> well, that is true. And, you know, part of what we have to do also is look at, at, at that whole virus, too, from perspective. It's devastating if you have immune deficiencies at any age, whether it's an organ transplant that you have or, you know, you, you're fighting cancer or you're on dialysis and have diabetes you know that you know w- we know that that can be be fought very effectively i mean look at tom tom hanks came out hey you know i have the virus and uh in 10 days he was released you know and he's a he's a functional diabetic he does a good job about ma- monitoring his overall health care and the virus was was a bad cold, a rough you know rough example of the of a flu type effect from him, according to his reports. And uh, he survived and he did quite well. But he also, you know has access to great health care. So we all need to pay attention to what's going on. Uh, but if you're immune deficient, we have to protect those individuals because they're the most susceptible. And I mean, if, if what's coming out of Italy and some of the other countries is, is true, we know that over 99% of the people who died from the, the virus have had other medical complications that weaken your immune system. And uh, that's, that's where we need to be focused on and realize that this quarantine isn't necessarily for that 18, 19, 20-year-old kid who's in prime of their life. It's for the people who are immune deficient. And if we could test everyone who's sick, only the people who are qualifying or testing for corona would be quarantined. But we don't know who those people are at this point, so we have to protect everybody. And that's why we're doing this whole system-wide shutdown.
0: And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. John Huber, Mainstream Mental Health, for joining us here this morning on Conversation 94 WIP giving us good advice for dealing with some of the psychological aspects of COVID-19 and the quarantine. Thank you, Dr. Huber. And there's nothing. Thank left you so to, much. Have an amazing my day. pleasure. And there's nothing left to say about it, but go wash your hands. Talk to you soon. And we ease on out of conversation and into WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And continuing our exploration of the COVID-19 and its various implications and permutations affecting each and every one of us, I'm pleased to welcome here two lovely people, Michelle Legasp Sanchez, Executive Director of the Chester County Fund for Women and Girls, and Judy Bell, their Board of Directors Chair. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. What is the Chester County Fund for Women and Girl Offenders? Women and girls, I'm sorry. How would you describe what it's there to do? Sure. Um,
2: So we are a nonprofit organization that has been serving Chester County for over 20 years now, and our whole goal is to uh, ensure that women and girls have the resources and opportunities to thrive. And so we've been doing that in a variety of ways for, again, over the last 20-plus years. through grants, so to giving funding to different organizations serving women and girls, um, we have granted out over three million dollars to um, seventy over seventy five nonprofits um, serving women and girls here in Chester County um, through girls programs like our girls advisory board um, which has been running for over fifteen years we're equipping young women to be leaders both now and in their future um, through the through edu- educating them in philanthropy, the community needs, civic engagement, um, leadership, um, and, of course, through education and advocacy, so bringing awareness to how women and girls are affected by what's going on in the community, so certainly um, crises like this, has a, you know, there's an opportunity to look at things through a gender lens, um, but, you know, we, again, we've been doing that for, for quite a bit of time to, to bring awareness and to highlight the, the specific needs and issues of women and girls. Before we... oh, Go
0: ahead.
2: thanks, Michelle.
3: I was going to add to that. Um, you know, each year on the grant making, uh, we fund probably approximately uh, a little over two hundred thousand uh, dollars, anywhere from ten to twenty uh, local nonprofits in Chester County. Again, as Michelle said, uh, serving women and girls initiatives.
0: Where does the money come from, though?
3: Oh, well, two, two ways, <laughs> donations uh, primarily uh, um, from uh, lo- our local community and uh, organizations, as well as um, years ago, um, some very um, uh, philanthropic pop- topic, uh, women uh, sat around a kitchen table and started an endowment, and we are fortunate uh, to have an endowment that each year uh, we're able to support these uh, organizations uh, through the endowment and then through our annual fundraising.
0: And part of that fundraising is events, isn't it? I'm sorry? Part of that fundraising is events, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. So we have our annual uh, luncheon, uh, which is usually scheduled for May. Uh, Right now we have it tentatively planned for June 5th on a Friday, Friday. Uh, We are sincerely hoping that we can pull that off in in some fashion. Uh, We also have a uh, breakfast uh, in November uh, called Champions of Change. And then obviously through um, uh, grant making and local donations from our
0: community. And you make an important point, though. One of the implications that COVID-19 brings to work (laughs) like yours is you have to postpone events and it damages your ability to fundraise. That's
2: correct. That's correct. I mean, obviously the safety of our community and of our constituents is, is priority. And so we are, um, you know, paying close attention to the guidelines that are that have been set. But yes, we've been very disappointed. I mean, the luncheon has been our longest standing event. It's always been in May. Um, clearly, this is going to impact that. And so just like other nonprofits um, across the country, you know, we're trying to figure out the best course of action to be able to Still bring awareness. Still bring the community together. Still raise these dollars that are really important for our for our work and for the work of other nonprofits that we are supporting, um, but doing it in a way that's going to be, um, you know, supportive and, and uh, in the interest of the public's health.
3: And I think this year too, uh, so you know, we know that um, through the requests that we get each year for the grants from these organizations. You know, we, we struggle each year. I mean, uh, I think, Michelle, this year our requests were over 350000 uh, When you have 200000 um, in, that's budgeted, we believe that, um, you know, due to this event, uh, the need is only going to be greater. Uh, so it's going to be critical for us to come up with, obviously, all of us creative solutions on how we can uh, meet the needs that are definitely going to be
0: out there the need is going to be greater and there's going to be more competition for those dollars people have to put into philanthropic work. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've really got to make a case to potential donors. Give it to me, not to them.
2: Right. And, you know, and, and that's, I mean, that's kind of, um, I think the crisis for nonprofits, for women and girls, what you're seeing is that the crisis is really, exacerbating a lot of the challenges that we've already faced. So before this even happened, the nonprofit sector, you know, it was a bit competitive when it comes to to funding because there is so much need. There's a lot of wonderful things that need to be supported and just limited dollars, um, you know, to be able to to be spread among these things. So again, I think the crisis just just makes it worse. Um, and, and, you know, it's so as a nonprofit. And so we're in an interesting space because we are uh, a grant making nonprofit. So we are funding other organizations, but we too also fundraise and have have to keep our own sustainability in mind in that way. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, as we face that and as other nonprofits face that, we are also thinking about how, as Judy said, there's increased needs in the community for for core services for very for, for helping to meet basic needs. Um, and so you know, you have that immediate need. You have the the fact that a lot of nonprofits have to shift their their service their modes of delivery to. Um, you know, remote or, or tele tele you know telemetric kind of uh, modes. So you know, there's there's that challenge, and then you know, there's the long term challenge that we're all thinking about. About once quarantine ends, once um, the stay at home order ends, you know, when the dust settles, what what do things look like? And you know, what will have to stay changed? You know, as, as we move forward into kind of a new normal.
0: What so there's just there's several levels
2: to to the impacts that we see
0: with nonprofits. Um, you know, that this crisis has had. Certainly. Um, Are the nonprofits you deal with having facing layoffs?
2: Um, I I have, I've heard a lot of, we've been in touch with a lot of our grantee organizations. We have been in touch with other foundations locally in Chester County, as well as the region. um, And that's certainly a concern. Um, you know, there, there's there been a lot of effort to just kind of um, maintain. But I, I've heard of some for sure, I've, uh, you know, I've, but I've also heard of a lot of nonprofits just trying to, to do what they can to, to make sure things continue. And, and, you know, there's a lot of empathy among foundations that I've spoken to just about, um, you know, being flexible and being and being um, empathetic to what the nonprofits have gone through. So I can't give you a, a number, but I certainly have heard um, stories about about that yeah thanks, Michelle.
3: But even when I look at um, our the list of grantees um, that we did for last year for two thousand nineteen, you know there's not, there is not one on this list um, that I don't believe is that is just going to exasperate the need. I mean, um, everything from you know mental health and child care um, uh, health initiatives, yeah, you know, it's 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 really going to be uh, interesting. Um, one of the things that we, uh, the organization, has done, um, has issued what's called a blueprint um, uh, program. And Michelle, I don't know if you want to talk to that because that's going to be really critical. Every four, four to five years, we do a blueprint report uh, regarding um, our community and what uh, you know, and to put the data uh, behind the initiatives and the needs of the uh, of Chester County. And I think it'll be really interesting. We were going to be planning our, uh, I think it's our fourth blueprint, correct, Michelle? Correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see um, uh, the data that comes out uh, as a result of of this pandemic uh, to define exactly what the numbers are uh, to support the initiatives that we know the community is going to need. So I don't know if you want to add to that, Michelle.
2: Sure. So, um, regarding our blueprint, that is kind of falls in our education and advocacy work that we've been doing for for quite some time. Um, in 2010, we came out with our first with our first blueprint, and again, that's a comprehensive study about how women and girls are faring at the local level, the state, and the national level. So, it's it's bringing the data forward um, and looking looking at what's going on in our backyard through that gender lens. Uh, we've worked with Westchester University. Um, since, our, since the start of the report in 2010, and, and we also did it in um, 2016, and also actually tw- 2005 was, was the very first one. Um, so this most recent one in 2016 um, pulled together like 80 different data sources. We held focus groups, you know, interviews, again, just kind of getting the full picture about um, what's going on for women and girls in different areas of, of women's health or health, economic security, political participation, you name it. So, again, very comprehensive um, and just and just taking a look at you know where we have made progress and where where there's still work to be done um, and as judy said you know when we take a look soon um, the story will be will be will be
0: different and it will be
2: you know this this crisis will certainly add a layer
0: to it well let me ask a question then and maybe it's not a fair one so I'll accept it if you would pass and that is <laughs> and that is is, West, is Chester County a good place to be a woman or a girl
2: I'm sorry, I, I kind of cut oh, out
0: there for a second. Is Chester County a good place to be a woman or a girl?
3: That's a very interesting question. Um, I'll, I'll take it, Michelle. I think uh, I, I would say yes, because I'm, I'm hopeful that over time, uh, we using uh, organizations and, and working with organizations such as ourselves, that we truly can make a difference and make this a, a, a great place for all to, to be able to live and work and 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 thrive but I do know that when I look at the blueprint report that there's an underlying even though we're one of the most wealthiest uh, counties in in the state and possibly in the nation um, when you read the data um, there are areas where it's not so great, and um, that's something that you know why we're, why we're here, uh, why the Chester County Women and Girls Fund exists and will continue to exist. So, that would be my
2: response. And I would agree for, for the most part. I mean, um, you know, the last R- blueprint report, the, the theme or the title was called Leveraging Progress, and, and you know, because it acknowledges, as Judy said all the positives, right? All the progress that we've made and all the, all the strengths that our County has, which would enable us to continue to move it forward. Um, So there is a lot to be celebrated, Um, but I think, you know, as, as you dig deeper, um, certain women and girls certainly have it harder here. I mean, that's a lot of what our blueprint, our last blueprint report points out, you know, for women of color, for girls of color, the story is a bit different. and the economic disparities and the health disparities um, are are significant. And so, certainly, their experience is a lot different. Or my experience, um, you know, as as a woman of color here, is is different. Um, but even even more difficult for African American women of color here in Chester County. I mean, for for example, the um, infant mortality rate. So I'll just pull one, you know, indicator, is is double what it is for uh, for for white women in Chester County, so meaning for a woman who has a has a baby, the chances that that baby dies before their first birthday is significantly higher. Um, so that's real, and that's local data, you know and and when we look at the wage gap, which for all women in Chester county compared to um compared to males in Chester county is about seventy three cents to a dollar for an African American woman, I mean that's sixty four cents to a dollar. so again there's there's real data to show that Depending on what type of, woman, of what woman you are or girl you are, just a county, your experience is really going to vary. And, um, but still, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom of five girls, and I'm raising my girls here, and I am hopeful um, that, they are, that they are living a, you know, a pretty, pretty comfortable life, you know, and, and are, have, they have a lot of opportunities um, afforded to them that would not be possible in other places.
0: And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP, All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. This morning we're finding out a lot about the Chester County Fund for Women and Girls from their executive director Michelle um, Lagasp. Le- Le- Lagaspi, you got Le- it. Yes, yeah, first time. <laughs> San- Sanchez and their board president Judy Bell. Now, guys, stay with me for a little bit. I got to run some commercials. We gotta pay the bills too. We'll be back in just a bit. Just playing ninety-four WIP WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Judy Bell, Chairman of the Board of the Chester County Fund for Women and Girls, and Michelle Legaspe Sanchez, their executive Le yeah. Sanchez, their executive director. All right, guys, let's whip out that gender lens. What's going on in Chester County as it relates to COVID nineteen?
2: So I think um, these, this what we've seen is not necessarily specific to Chester County, but I think is, is just um, on our radar in terms of women and girls everywhere. And as I mentioned before, you know, this pandemic has really brought into sharper focus, the challenges that were already in place, that, you know, that women were already facing. And it really just across the board just magnifies a lot of the existing inequalities um, that have been in place. Um, so... Just, you know, in the in the short term, you know, with this new normal, there's really just been more of a challenge, you know, for women as we take on the caregiving, homeschooling role, as well as for many of us just working from home. Um, just, you know, it as the default, it just often falls more on women, again, because of the existing structure of our workforce. There's a, a practical nature to it, right? You know, in a two parent household, often the person who's paid less or who has more flexibility is, is the woman and so um, often that's you know in this new situation where kids are at home the running and juggling the household and 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 tending to the kids who would otherwise be at school or in daycare is, is falling um, on the female which is you know not easy it's not easy certainly um, under normal circumstances but this and the stress of the climate is, has definitely made it made it harder um, you know looking at things in a longer view you know we know that women are at an increased risk for the the virus because you know often they are disproportionately represented in positions or jobs that really put them on the front line or a higher risk of infections. you know they make up a large proportion of of the the nurses in the workforce of flight attendants of teachers, service industry workers. Um, so just by the nature of what they're doing as a profession, um, you know their risk is higher to to, to um, contract the virus, you know we're also seeing the economic impact. You know everyone is facing that, but for women, um, it, they can be particularly vulnerable because you know again, as I mentioned, just before this crisis even started, what we what we saw is that their jobs are often less secure. You know we are over overrepresented in um, in terms of uh, informal work work um, work structures, you know, small in small businesses, you know, and again, these are what we've seen are just these are sectors or these are positions that are very vulnerable, you know, gig workers. um, We are we are more vulnerable because we are overrepresented in these in these types of professions, Um, you know, and and there's very real reality about how women are facing an increased risk of gender based violence because they are spending more time at home. You know, for many women, home is not the safe place to begin with, you know, school for kids, or work may be the place where they are able to seek protection from an abusive situation at home. So um, the fact that everyone is, is staying in home can be threatening for, for certain women in, in their situation. You know, and once you add that layer of stress and alcohol and financial difficulties, which a lot of families and communities are facing right now, um, you know, th- those are those are triggers for further violence. And so, again, that can just make it... Um, a more difficult place uh, to, to be right now for, for women. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the fact that women can face a potential loss of resources. So in a situation like this, it's natural that, it, you know, with emergencies will shift resources to away from the routine, away from what's already being funded, um, you know, and, and for women that could specifically mean access to women's health care, or services, which again are are sometimes constrained as is, but when you are reallocating resources to um, to address this emergency or this crisis, that leaves um, that leaves there an even a bigger gap and um, leaves women get again vulnerable. So, just different areas where the where the where the climate is really just making it difficult um, and more challenging for more vulnerable for women and, and girls um
0: at this time. Certainly not in Pennsylvania, but in some other states we're seeing um termination of pregnancy surgery as being an optional surgery and therefore not being allowed.
2: Yes, yes. We 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 heard that and, and um yes, that's that's definitely true. And that's are that taking
3: advantage of um I want to say the situation in order to leverage, um, you know, um, you know, right to choose, and um, it's difficult to understand in these conditions how um, how, how we could be doing that. However, um, hopefully, we won't see that here in Pennsylvania, and we'll give support to those organizations outside of the state, outside of our state, uh,
0: to to um, hopefully um, get past that. Speaking of that, do you network with other organizations in other counties and states?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, and I mean, that's especially in a time like this, you know, we are certainly in conversations. There's, um, there's a whole organization called the Women's Funding Network, which is a membership organization for other foundations like us, which is uh, focused on women and girls. And so we are certainly, um, you know, networked and connected to them, not just in crisis time, but just you know, as as a member of that organization, we can we can um, <clears throat> you know learn from each other in terms of best practices and and what we're doing um, to address the women and girls issues. Um, you know, we are also connected to several organizations, um, nonprofits, and and partners across the state on different issues. You know, especially in our advocacy work. So, you know, we're part of a lot of different coalitions around um, different topics, like um, for instance. Uh, there's a comprehensive sex ed coalition. There's a women's health coalition. And, you know, all of that is because it's necessary, right? I mean, for us to make progress on these issues, it is about partnership. It's about a collective voice and collective effort to to um, accomplish our objectives or our goals. So those are just a couple examples. You know, again, I think um, it's just critical in, in the nonprofit space or probably in any industry to be connected to to colleagues and to peers um, to be able to, to really make strides together in whatever you're
0: trying to do. True, very true. Um, Is it hard, though, to get people's attention?
3: Good question. I I think um, if if you asked me before this occurred, I'd say um, no. However, I think people's efforts are, are um, I don't think they. we know exactly where to focus our efforts yet, um, with the exception of, you know, making sure people are healthy, uh, you know, f- uh, paying attention. Um, I think some people, even in the beginning of this, thought, well, you know, not in my backyard or not here, and I think that, that that's proven not to be so and i um people are definitely paying attention now because it is in our backyard. Uh so that's you know kind of historically, you know when it's right here in your face, um people pay attention. Uh when you know again not so much in in my um in my community. Um it's harder at at, at that point, but it, it it'll be really critical for organizations such as ourselves. Um you know part of our mission is to lead and unite and i think um that's going to be so critical here uh as we come out of this hopefully uh to lead and unite and to bring uh the right partners and coalitions together uh to sure that we have the resources because we're going to need them uh and we're going to need them in every community and in, in our in our sphere is
0: there a role for men in all of this absolutely
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> definitely absolutely <laughs> Uh, Yeah, we
3: actually have um, uh, uh, a part of our grants allocation uh, board. We have a a group of volunteers each year uh, that work on a committee that select our grantees. So it's about, what, Michelle, about a two- or three-month process uh, where Mm -hmm. they review the uh, uh, requests for proposals. They go out and they do site visits of of the nonprofits uh, before they do the grants allocation. Uh, Those were scheduled to happen uh, here this month. Uh, those now are on virtual. Uh, so we invite uh, men to participate in this uh, grants allocation. It's really an eye-opener, I think, for them too, to, to um, really be able to see and hear and read about the local, um, you know, nonprofits in our in our community and how many there are. And they get uh, this is a, a, an eye-opener for them. Actually, this year. Uh, My husband, uh, Tim, is serving on the grants allocation and board, and he's been, you know, amazed at what goes on behind the scenes when you're, you know, in your day-to-day job and you're not in the nonprofit sector that, you know, this is a whole industry, right? And they are – we invite men uh, to join us uh, at at all levels of uh, Chester County women and girls.
0: Well, I think it's true that most men – don't think that far. They see their family, their friends, their coworkers, and it all works for them. So they don't think about the people they don't see. That's true.
2: But I, I think that's not necessarily unique to men. I mean, we see that eye-opening experience happen to to the women that also participate, too. You know, I think, again, that's that's kind of like the double-edged sword of Chester County, right? Like it's very easy to have your comfortable experience and your, your orbit where you're not confronted with the realities of poverty here in your backyard, or you're not confronted with the need that's among us. And so um, it can just be eye-opening for anyone to really be exposed to that. Um, And I think that's an important aspect of that whole process, an important aspect of what we do. is just bringing that awareness and bringing that education about nonprofits, about the needs, um, here in Chester County, um, so that people are, are motivated to do something and to act and to join us or join other nonprofits um, to really to make change. So it's an important aspect of our work. And I, I'd also add that, you know, regarding your question about men's roles, um, it is certainly critical, and, and they do play an important role in our grants allocation committee. But, uh, you know, as Judy mentioned, we, we in, try to engage them in other aspects of our work uh, most notably, recently we have been working with the Chester County Women's Commission about uh, around the issue of sexual harassment in the workplace. And so, in the fall, we had done a um, we had launched a or actually it was now last year we launched the survey, encouraging mm-hmm. anyone in Chester County who lives or works in Chester County to participate in um, a survey just about their experience. Um, and we uh, worked with Capacity for Change, um, which is a um, consulting firm a public interest consulting firm who was the way they were once the ones who created the survey and then pulled it together. And then in the fall, we had a summit which released the findings. And um, and th- that report is called Chesco Knows. And so it was not surprising in terms of the data where, you know, it, it very much aligns with what we see nationally in terms of the fact that it, it certainly happens here in Chester County. I think what people found more eye, eye-opening was the, you um, the qualitative stories, you know, the experiences that people shared, which just showed, you know, that it's it's um, far-reaching, that it's, um, you know, it's varied in, in the experiences, and it's tricky, right, because people define this differently. And so in the fall, we had that Chesco No Summit, and now we are moving into our Chesco Act phase, which is about, you know, again, taking this information, taking these conversations, and doing something about it. And so, you know, engaging men, particularly on this issue, has been really um, effective and it's been really important because, you know, this is about respect. You know, this is about, um, you know, building a workplace culture where people feel safe and valued and and heard. And that that should be across the board. And certainly everyone in the workplace needs to be involved in that. And it's not something that, you know, we're pointing the finger at, at men specifically on this because this is, you know, we want to really change the, the conversation, change the tone of that so that we can all come together, not in an offensive way, but, you know, kind of we all have a role to play to make productive, um, you know, safer, respectful workplace environment. So we had done a lot around engaging male community leaders on um, trainings and workshops. We worked with a national group called The Call to Men who has come to Chester County twice to work with our nonprofit grantees as well as um again male male community leaders to participate um just to bring education and bring them together to talk about you know what we can do um as as um you know for these guys as allies to really to really drive this this point home to create better you know safer workplace environments. so that's just an example of another way that we're engaging men um because it's it's not something we can do alone i mean a, gender equality is really is beneficial for the community for, for for the whole community, right? I mean, it's there's economic ramifications. There's it's not just um, it's not a moral thing. It's, it's it goes so much beyond it, right? Like the economy will thrive when we recognize um, the inequalities that exist and do something to address it, right? Because as more women are breadwinners, um, you know, to, contributing to the household income, you know that and that's really key to be able to. Uh, As we are relying on that that income and we're relying on the women being more and more an economic force um, as we engage them and as, as we as we are able to contribute more, then that's going to help the whole community advance economically. And that, you know, is so important now more than ever.
0: Absolutely. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back after these messages. Tell that smart speaker to play 94 WIP, WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Judy Bell, chairman of the board of the Chester County Fund for Women and Girls, and Michelle Legaspe Sanchez, their executive director. All right. Um, am I missing anything? That's a loaded question. <laughs> well, I <unload> know <then>. Good. <laughs> I want this to meet your needs as well as mine.
3: Oh, perfect, perfect. Um, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for Peter for this opportunity um, for Michelle and I to share a story about uh, the Chester County Fund for Women and Girls. Um, you know, I, I when I think about this, you know, why am um, I, I want to say, why am I so passionate about the fund is, you know, each and every nonprofit that we support offer programs and resources that have, as Michelle said earlier, such an exponential effect um, because when we invest in in women and girls, um, we're investing in the people who invest in everyone else. And um, just, you know, by the nature of the services and programs that we provide, it is it does have um, we can see the impact on the community and it's going to be critically important as I said earlier that we really pull together now uh, even more importantly and lead and unite as we as, as we try to get through this um, for, for our community and, for, and and really for the world um, it's just not here it's, it, it's everywhere and the you know what what we demonstrate um, as an organization, uh, it, it can have an impact globally. You know, our programs. Um, one of the uh, program that Michelle stated earlier was our Girls Advisory Board. We have, you know, young women, um, high school between uh, uh, senior uh, juniors and seniors, each year that we put through a Girls Advisory Program, and we teach them about philanthropy and their and the needs of the community. Uh, it's about a seven-week program, and you can see uh, these young women. Uh, just really have a, a, a tremendous uh, influence on their life and on the confidence and, and, and opening their eyes to what's happening in their local community. And each year they choose a, a few topics to fund. Uh, this year I think it was uh, mental health and, um, uh, Michelle, help me out. It was mental health and um,
2: human trafficking, um, substance abuse. Uh, those were the biggies. Thank you.
3: So, so um, we fund the girls of approximately twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars, and they read uh, grant proposals from local nonprofits for those chosen topics, and then the, they specifically um, uh, choose. They do the site visits. They're very similar to our grants allocation, but we have it focused just on uh, on young women.
0: All right, Michelle, anything I've missed?
2: Yeah, and I would just add, you know, as Judy said, it is incredibly eye-opening for them. I mean, imagine going back to high school and thinking, and just think about what you were thinking about, right? And and um, again, now as a mom, when I when I see my girls in the, in that state, and not, they're not high schoolers yet, but they are approaching. You know, they're some two of them, One of them is in adolescence, and what helps, I think, is to really draw her out, right, and have her think about what something other than herself and her and her orbit and and really think about what's going on and f- help her find her passion and so that's exactly what this program is it's really helping them exposing them to what's out there and what um what they can do to really address it and then it's like lighting a match you know you set these girls you You set them up for for their future for success for, for for them to really unleash their passion. you get out of their way because it's it's been amazing to see you know what they pursue even you know and they don't wait they don't wait till they're out of high school they don't wait even for college I mean they're ready, and that's what we need you know that type of leadership and and that leadership uh passion found so early and so you know we this program has been around for 15 years and now so these girls that these these young women that came to us as girls are like living now as our leaders and they are you know for sure on the front line of this crisis and you know we have one alum who serves on our board you know and and there's others who are active in the community um in their communities as, as they lead Chester County and it's wonderful to see that um, that happen and and to to see again that that match being lit and that taking off um, and you know we find this to be a really important aspect of our work just the girls leadership component I mean we have a long history with the girls advisory board but more recently we have started Girl Gov Chester County um, in partnership with the Women and Girls Foundation of Pittsburgh who has been running this program for many years we brought that as a chap as a chapter here in Chester County and this program is all focused on um, advocacy, on civic engagement, on policy, because as you can imagine, and I'm sure as you've seen, Peter, you know, in the last few years, there's been an uptick in the um, interest in politics and participation in politics for women and and girls, really, you know, we see that and, and we want to cultivate that. We want to make sure that these girls can put their energy towards, um, you know, their goals of, of being community leaders and um you know lawmakers one day or presidents even so you know these girls they too in the same way of of the girls advisory board they have the chance to really come to consensus come together to talk about what is most important to them um, and what's most pressing and so we have subcommittees within our group that are focused on education on um, you know health uh, racial justice through the the lens of health through uh, environment um, and through the whole school year, these girls in their groups have been working on projects, uh, you know, that are policy level, that are advocacy. They've been working with community leaders um, who've served as, like, a liaison or um, a support to, to their project. Um, and they will be ending their year at, of GirlGov in Harrisburg, hopefully, if, if things um, settle down. You know, that the goal is really for them to go to Harrisburg in June a few days to meet with lawmakers about their projects, um, gain their support, and, and to also connect with the girls from Pittsburgh who are also part of Girl God out there. Um, and again, just bringing together that collective energy among these young women and um, you know, engaging them in, in advocacy work um, about what really excites them. And I think that is key, right? Just again, helping these young women to find their passions and equipping them to do something about it. I mean, that's really what gives me hope moving forward um, because we are just setting these young leaders up for success. We're building them up now so that they are able to, um, you know, fix what's going on and and really address it, um, you know, for, for their futures um, because it's critical. I mean, we need that leadership now more than ever.
0: Well, earlier I asked so about getting the public's attention and certainly (laughs) you get the attention, word of mouth, (coughs) direct mail, I say, and, but, and, correct,
3: correct. Right. I, you know, I think uh, one of our biggest is is uh, we're a very one of the things I love about the fund and and our supporters, our volunteers, our board of directors. That it, this is a very welcoming group, uh, <laughs> um, and you know, we. I think the the best that we've done is is bringing people. Uh, into the organization at various levels. We have, you know, different committees. Um, Hopefully people listening to your program today are going to check us out on our website, uh, uh, ccfwg.org. If you Mm -hmm. just type in Chester County Women and Girls, it'll come up. But, you know, learn about us, uh, call us. Um, And like I said, we're very uh, welcoming. And because we have different aspects of our organization so we have obviously the grant making we have the girls um, programs we have our luncheon we have our champions of of change breakfast to recognize organizations and companies that are as Michelle said earlier for example um, uh, workplace violence or sexual harassment violence in the workplace organizations that are you know have stepped up to the plate and are demonstrating that they're um, making change within their organization you know we really have to deepen our impact of the dollars that we invest in into our community, and I invite and and when people come into the fund and start to work with us, it's electrifying it's it's you know there's a lot of energy within our organization, and um, you know people come through, some end up on the board of directors, some you know are part of our committees for for many, many years so I would just encourage um, anybody listening, and um, we continue uh, to be ambassadors, all of us uh, uh, that are uh, supporters of, of the fund, and uh, check us out.
0: Well, but let me ask the final question then: Is media, print media, radio, television, receptive to your message?
2: Yeah, I mean, I we we're we're doing our best to get it out there. <laughs> I mean. This isn't the first time I've been on the radio. And so, you know, we we have been um, we've been able to um, do some engagements. But, of course, we would welcome more, uh, especially in this time. You know, social media is definitely a a big vehicle to get our message out there and to create more awareness about what we do and the the issues and the needs that are important to us. I mean, that's one thing we've been focused on since COVID-19, right, because everyone is being inundated by news. On this you know and and um, what we really bring to the table is looking at this through a gender lens you know all those things that I mentioned to you about how women and girls are affected that's not necessarily being talked about um, in the same way that you're hearing the data about cases and about you know what's going on you know with the with the CARES Act and all that stuff so it's it's not part of the regular news cycle but yet it's such an important aspect uh, moving forward and, and dealing with this crisis is looking at this um, from that gender lens and from the perspective of, of women and girls. Um, so, you know, that's a, a drum we will continuously beat. Uh, that we have been beating it for 20 plus years. And again, this is just this, this new current situation is really just another opportunity for us to bring that gender lens forward and talk about it um, through, through, that, um, through those eyes. Um, so, you know, social media has been a, a big way to do that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really multi-layered. It's, um, you know, we're, we're trying to attack this and get attention from, from many different angles. Um, and, you know, that it's being connected to all the partners I had mentioned before um, is very important for us to also keep close tabs on our nonprofits and really highlight what they're seeing and what their needs are. That's another important aspect of of our voice and getting it out there. Um, You know, we really see ourselves as a convener. We see ourselves as um, just the voice of of women and girls. And so it's just important to get that that out there. And so, yeah, as Judy said, you know, this opportunity was wonderful, and we're really grateful for it. Um, And we hope that we can connect further and um, just continue to bring awareness and hopefully spark action to address, to address this, and um, because you know it's, it's more critical than ever.
0: Well, certainly, as long as I'm here at 94 WIP, the door is open for anything that Chester County Fund for Women and Girl Offender for women and girls. Sorry, I keep trying to put that offender stuff on there. For women and girls, will always have access. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Judy Bell. Thank you, Michelle Gasp, Sanchez, for being with us here this morning on WIP. Stay tuned for Sports Talk for Sunny Hill. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.